Love is a powerful thing. You know, Craig talked about it during our communion time, and yeah, I'm going to talk about it now. Because we're still doing the promises of love and, and still walking through those based on the idea that God loves us in all the ways that we typically receive or give love. He expresses those because he is love. He speaks everybody's love language. So no matter whether your love language is words of affirmation or touch or quality time, it doesn't matter. God speaks all of those languages. I'm going to talk about one that he speaks loud and clear this morning. It is the love language of acts of service. On the southern border of the empire, of Cyrus. Now, does everybody know who Cyrus was? I mean, we, we talked about Cyrus many years ago when I was going through the book of Isaiah with you. Cyrus was the, the conquering Persian king who took down the Babylonian empire and eventually then returned the Jews to their home in Israel because they had been taken captive some 500 years before that. And that was the story of Daniel and, and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego, uh, all of those guys. In the book of Daniel, they served under the Babylonian Empire and then later under Cyrus as well until they were returned from their captivity. On the southern border of the empire of Cyrus, so this is after Cyrus has already taken over all of Babylon, there lived a great chieftain and his name was Cagular. And he tore to shreds and completely defeated the various detachments of Cyrus's army that were sent to subdue him. Finally, Cyrus, the emperor himself, amassed his whole army, marched down, surrounded Cagular, captured him, and brought him to the capital where he would be executed. On the day of the trial, he and his family were brought to the judgment chamber. And Cagular, he was this fine-looking man. He was a little more than six feet tall. He had this kind of noble manner about him. He was a magnificent specimen of a human being. So impressed was Cyrus with the way this man looked that he said to Cagular, well, what would you do should I spare your life? Well, your majesty, if you spared my life, I would return to my home and remain your obedient servant as long as I lived. Okay. What would you do if I spared the life of your wife? Your majesty, if you spared the life of my wife, I would die for you. So moved was Cyrus that he freed them both and returned Cagular to his providence to act as the governor from that point on. Upon arriving at home, Cagular reminisced about that whole trip with his wife. Did you notice, he said to his wife, the marble entrance to the palace? Did you notice the tapestries on the walls as we went down the corridor to the throne room? Did you see the chair that the emperor was sitting on? It must have been carved from a solid lump of pure gold. His wife could appreciate his excitement and how impressed he was with it all, but she only replied, I really didn't notice any of that. Well, Cagular said in amazement, what did you see? His wife looked seriously into his eyes and said, I beheld only the face of the man who said he would die for me. That's love. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God speaks the love language of service. Perhaps louder than any other love language, at least in terms of the way it impacts us as human beings, 
Service is a, is a, a, a language of love that God knows well. How many of you know that your love language, or at least one of your love languages, is acts of service? Some of you know what your love languages are, some of you don't, and that's okay. If your love language is an act of service, then you love to do things for people to show them that you care about them. More often than not, you want those acts of random kindness to be your own idea. In fact, you may find yourself not enjoying them if someone asked you to do something, in part because it wasn't your idea, and in some cases because it might feel like you're manipulating my love language. You don't want your love language manipulated. Can anybody identify with that? Yeah, it's like, oh man, I'll, I'll, I'll go and I'll babysit the kids, or I'll, I'll clean the house, or I'll do, what, I'll do whatever kind of thing, until somebody asks me to do it. Then it's like, hmm, okay, well, I might still do it, but somehow it just doesn't feel the same. I don't get the, the, the charge out of doing it. It's not, it's not a love language that I want to you know, really experience at that moment kind of thing because it, it doesn't feel quite right. We like to, to, to initiate acts of service. It's, it's one of the things that we do. Like most love language, there are two sides to the language of service. There's the giving side and the receiving side. How many of you know you're a giver's? Okay, all right. How many of you are just receivers? You want people to do good things for you. Oh, you're lying. Oh, come on. <laughs> Some of us are just born to have other people serve. Okay, we got two. Okay, that's good. <laughs> you, you might enjoy doing random acts of kindness, but you don't enjoy them quite as much as receiving them, and that's okay. You may receive them with enthusiasm, but not really do them in the same vigor. Regardless of whether you're a giver or a receiver when it comes to, to acts of, of service, they're part of your language, and it's part of the love language that God speaks. And he does this really loud and clear with what Craig was talking about and what I want to share with you right now. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 42. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 42. Um, I'm actually going to read out of two different versions this morning, but we're going to start with the NIV. This is what it says in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42. Jesus called them together. Together, uh, he's talking, we're talking to disciples, okay? Jesus called them all together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is one of the really amazing teaching moments in the life of the disciples. Think about this just a moment with me. Every one of the disciples were schooled in the Jewish faith from the time they were little boys and girls. By the time, is that, uh, this is the broader scope of disciples. He has a whole lot more people following him around. He's teaching, he's moving from house to house. So there's girls involved, sorry about that. Uh, but there are, I'm not talking about just the men. All of them, especially the little boys, had to attend classes from the time they were very little to understand what it meant to be a Jew. By the time they meet Jesus, most of them are 
probably late teens, early 20s, by the time they meet Jesus, they are rooted in their understanding of what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be godly. Their pictures and their models have been the religious leaders that they have encountered and sometimes learned from along the way. This is true of every Jew that Jesus is talking to in the house this day. He's going to give them, however, a very different picture of what a leader is supposed to be. And it's tied directly to the idea of being a servant, one who serves, one who speaks the language of acts of service. Now, forgive me for this. I know I'm just getting started here this morning, but we're going to stop and pray, and then I'm going to take off on a bunny trail, okay? Because I need you to see some context to this passage that's really important, okay? So let's stop and pray, and then, well, we'll hop down the different lane. Heavenly Father, I just, I'm so grateful that you speak this language. Jesus, that you demonstrated it so graphically for us as you laid down your life for us. This truly is love. And it is a very outward expression of love, one that we can see and relate to. And I'm grateful for that. Father, I pray that you would speak to all of us this morning, especially to those with the love language of service and receiving service, Father, because it is the love language that you speak, and it is how you relate and let them know how precious they are. But you really do that for all of us. All of us really are receivers when it comes to acts of service. And Jesus, thank you that you gave the ultimate act in giving of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this little bunny trail, it's kind of unavoidable because it's, it's in the passage and you have to be able to see it in order to understand a little bit of what Jesus is doing when he talks about this kind of service and what it means to love the way that he does. Earlier in this same chapter, if you go back up to the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus is tested by the Pharisees. They come, they're, they're trying to, to figure out, how can I trip Jesus up? They ask him a question. How, does, how do you feel? Okay, Jesus, how do you feel about the subject of divorce? What's your opinion? And, and they're hoping that his opinion will be the wrong opinion, maybe the popular opinion of the day, but a wrong opinion, so that they'll have something to hold against him, something that they can use to kind of discredit him as a teacher who's sent from God. And Jesus' answer to them is not one that they really expected. He shuts down the conversation because they don't know how to respond to what he says. Basically, Jesus says that divorce is man's idea for solving relational issues, not God's. God has always had a better plan. We just don't always cooperate. Now, understand, this message isn't about divorce, but I'm kind of painting a picture here. If you're sitting there this morning, you've gone through divorce... Jesus is not condemning divorce. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It's also not God's plan for a marriage. God has one plan for a marriage, that a man and woman would be united, become one flesh forever. That's his plan. Why? Because divorce is painful, folks. It's destructive, and God never plans to harm you, so it's never going to be in his will for your life. Maybe for you, divorce was the only option you saw to avoid or to gain freedom from the pain and destruction of your marriage. Know this. Understand this. God's heart broke for you 
Literally, Jesus' heart was pierced and bled for your pain. Your pain was not his plan. He created marriage for a man and a woman to be united forever. And it's a picture of the unity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here's the deal. When our sinful nature kind of enters into the picture, that unity that God designed for the marriage relationship is challenged. It's, it's often wounded. It's damaged. And it gets broken. And that's why divorce exists. It's because people, all people, have a free will to say yes or no to God's plan for their abundant life. When we choose our own way, whether it's both people in the marriage or just one person, damage and woundedness happens. The good news is that God is in the healing business, healing broken lives and healing broken hearts. So no matter what position you're in, no matter what you think about divorce, Understand this. God is not in the business of condemnation, not his people. Romans 8.1 tells us, therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So don't live under that kind of guilt or shame. It's not proper. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. doesn't mean that there's no sin. Some people go there. Okay, we still manage to sin. The, the reason that marriage is so hard is that we do manage to sin. And we tend to sin against one another just like we sin against God. I know that I've hurt my wife many times. In fact, it's said and it's true. We hurt the people that we love the most the most often, right? It, it's, it's just true because they're so vulnerable to our mistakes. If you've been through divorce, God is in the business of redemption. And to redeem is to make new, okay? Know that. Now, the reason I went here, why, why, why did I go there, okay? Because that was my bunny trail. I'm done, okay? Remember that the Jewish people following Jesus have a picture of what it means to be a religious leader. In their eyes, what it means to be godly. They've watched they're religious leaders. They've been taught by them all of their lives. And Mark has just given us a picture through this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees of what that looks like. And on the surface, it sounds like a fairly straightforward political maneuver by some entrenched leaders against this up-and-coming new man of influence in the faith. They're trying to figure out a way to discredit him so they keep their power. So when Jesus talks about godless rulers later on in the passage we're in, verse 42, he's not taking them down a notch. Believe it or not, that's not what he's trying to do. But if that's not the case, then there's obviously something else going on here, right? Why would he say that? Well, he does have a purpose for it. Do you know what the Pharisees' real problem, what their real issue was? You know, they came to Jesus to test him, to find out if they could figure out a way to discredit him, okay? But you know what their real problem was? We, we, we've talked about this before. Some people think it was ambition. They wanted to keep their power. They wanted to, to keep their place of, of leadership. Others would say it was their pride. And it probably was both of those things, but mostly that's not what Jesus said it was. Do you know what Jesus said their problem was? Blindness. 
He called them blind guides, the blind leading the blind. Why? Because they were the learned men of God in that day, and yet they still missed the most important part of their faith. They missed understanding the heart of God. That was their problem. Now, put that in the context of their question to Jesus about divorce. Here you have one of the really hot topics of Jesus' day, divorce. It's probably still kind of a hot topic in the church today. There were two schools of thought in Jesus' day about divorce among the Jews. The school of Rabbi Hillel held that a man could divorce his wife for anything that displeased him. For example, if, she didn't, if he didn't like her cooking, you're gone. Okay? Guys, you can't do that. Okay. If he didn't like the way she cleaned the house, you're gone. If he didn't like his mother-in-law, you're gone. All he had to do was give her a certificate of divorce, and she'd be on her way. The school of Rabbi Shammai held that a man could only divorce her if she committed adultery. Bottom line, this is the only way you can, you can do that. Now, you notice, did you notice here that, that we're talking about the men divorcing the women, never the women divorcing the men? Okay. I, I apologize for this, but in that day and age, women were more like a possession than they were a real person in, in many respects, it's at least as far as the law goes. Jesus was the revolutionary of his day. Christianity revolutionized how we even see women. Amen. Amen. Because we are neither man nor woman, okay? Neither uh, slave nor master, Greek nor Jew. In Christ, we are all the same. And that was revolutionary. Jesus' view of divorce was just as, as shocking to these people. Understand this. When Moses wrote the Old Testament laws about divorce, he wasn't actually condoning divorce. See, the two rabbis here, they got their information from the Old Testament. That was their communication of God, right? And Hillel took one direction with it, and Shammai took a different direction with it, but they both went back to the Old Testament to try to figure out, you know, what is this issue with divorce and how do we handle it? And even though they took very different tangents, you have the left and the right, that's where they were getting their source. But what they didn't understand was Moses didn't write the ability to divorce your spouse because God thought that was okay, that they got divorced. What he did was he tried to stem the tide of what was already happening and already being practiced in their culture. He tried to put some brakes on the thing and say, no, 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 wait a minute. You can't just tell her to get out of the tent. There's some things you need to do here. Let's not jump into this divorce thing. That was his heart towards it. And God's heart was very, very clear in the Old Testament. Malachi said it very well in Malachi 2.16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Very simple. God gave his opinion. I don't like this. You're doing it, but I don't have to approve of it. Divorce was never God's plan for a man and a woman, and it's always going to be outside of his abundant life for you. He will always want better for us. So 
This question by the Pharisees really displays their heart and their lack of understanding about the heart of God. Think about this. You're in mixed company. You don't know who you're with, right? And these guys come asking a question, a question about one of the most painful tragedies of the human heart. And they offer it up like a well-served political volleyball. There's no regard for the pain and suffering of the people who might be listening, who have had to go through that kind of rejection. It shows how little they regard the heart of man, much less the heart of God. Second, it's a stupid question. What do you think about divorce? It's clearly answered in the Old Testament. So why are you asking? You can't get much clearer than, I hate divorce. There should never have been any debate in the first place. Folks, listen carefully. The problem is not that divorce exists even in our culture today. Divorce is just a symptom of a deeper problem. And that problem is the one that Jesus addresses. Listen again to our passage. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why is a ransom paid? Why is a ransom paid? To get something back that was taken, something that was stolen, right? When something gets stolen, I pay a ransom for its return. I like the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases this particular passage in his message Bible. Listen to how Eugene puts it when he paraphrases it. I'm going to read the whole thing, 42 through 45. Jesus got them together to settle things down. You've observed how the godless rulers throw their weight around, he said, and when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Now listen to verse 45 carefully. That is what the Son of Man has done. He has come to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. That's what ransom means. To give his life for those held hostage. Does that remind you of anything? Jesus declared that his life's mission was to bring freedom. In Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, a ransom for many. Recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, a ransom for many. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, which again is all about redeeming what has been lost. Herein lies the real issue about leadership and the Father's heart that the Pharisees are missing. The Pharisees were only interested in their rules and their controls. Debating issues of the heart like divorce didn't move their hearts toward the desperate need for change. It was just a political volleyball to throw around. They were supposed to be serving the needs, the desperate needs of the people, not just making up rules and controls. Rules do nothing to fix the heart that wants to break the rules. Duh. You do realize that, right? I'm, I, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, rules were meant to be broken, right? Everybody's heard that one. Rules do nothing to change the heart of the one who wants to break the rules. They're just obstacles to try to figure out how do I get around. People will always do what they want to do 
and rules don't really change that. The only cure, the only cure, is to change what people want to do. Get it? People will do what they want to do. Rules won't change that. The only cure is to change what people want to do. That only happens when there's a change of heart. A change of heart is what brings about a change of action, and a change of thinking always precedes a change of doing. There was a large group of European pastors that had come to one of D.L. Moody's Northfield Bible Conferences in Massachusetts in the late 1800s. And following the, the European custom of the time, each guest put his shoes outside of his room to be cleaned by the hall servants overnight. It's just what was done in Europe. But of course, this was America, and there were no hall servants. And walking in the dormitory halls that night, Moody saw the shoes, and he determined not to embarrass his brothers. He mentioned the need for some ministerial students who were there, but it was, he was only met with silence, and, well, that didn't go over so great. So Moody returned to the dorm, gathered up all the shoes, and alone in his room, the world's only famous evangelist at that time began to clean and polish all those men's shoes. Only the unexpected arrival of a friend in the midst of the work revealed his secret. When the foreign visitors opened their doors the next morning, their shoes were shined. They never knew who did it. Moody told no one, but his friend told a few people, and during the rest of the conference, different men volunteered to shine the shoes in secret. Perhaps the episode is a, an insight into D.L. Moody and the kind of servant that he was. He was a man with a servant's heart, and that was the basis of his true greatness. It's also what changed the other men's heart. The rules don't change people's hearts. But acts of service, acts of love, that will change a person's heart. And I think Moody understood that after the fact. He was just intent on making sure that his brothers from Europe weren't embarrassed in the morning and didn't think less of people because their shoes weren't shined. And he saw no problem serving them in that fashion. Folks, helping another person to see the love of God through acts of service is what sets the heart free. It is a way of communicating love that's meant to move the captive into a different way of thinking, to set them free, to change their hearts. Jesus came to exchange his life for many who were held hostage, to give them a new way of living, a new freedom that they never experienced before, freedom from the lies and the wounds that destroy things like marriage to give them a new heart and a new life. You know what the cure for divorce is? A new heart, a new life, a new freedom so that you can live unfettered before God knowing how you're loved, knowing his heart towards you. That changes marriages because it changes people. This is how Jesus defines serving us he came to serve, not be served. His service to us was an exchange. His life for my messed up one. His way of living and thinking and doing for my broken responses to God and to people. The ultimate service is the ultimate form of love, laying down a person's life for someone else's welfare. Again, I love the way Peterson states it. 
You've observed how the godless rulers throw their weight around. People get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Catch that? It's not supposed to be like that for us. Why? Because we're not going to do that kind of living before God. That's not the kind of leadership that we're going to show. We're going to serve because, well, that's God's heart towards me. We're going to love because that's the heart he has for us. We love because he first loved us. Because that's what real leaders do. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Servant leadership may not be a popular trend in our culture today, but it's the only leadership in kingdom culture, folks. The only leadership in kingdom culture. It's what our leader did. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not be served, and then to give his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. Listen, I don't really care how perfect you think your theology might be. If your understanding of God doesn't lead you into loving people and laying your life down in service to God and people, then you're not really understanding the Father's heart. You're not understanding God, at least not the God of the Bible. It's just that simple. Service, acts of service, is a love language that Jesus speaks loud and clear. And he did it not just in words. He did it with his life. When I first started this passage, I chose it because it was a perfect example of God loving us through serving us, right? That last verse is just, how can you get better than that? I didn't come to be served. I came to serve by laying down my life as a ransom for many. But in looking at the whole passage, there were a whole lot more things here that just kind of needed to make sense. So I kind of wanted to wrap them together for you this morning. The first thing I really want you to see here, to bring full circle, the Pharisees missed the whole leadership servant thing because they missed the heart of God. That was their biggest problem. They were blind guides trying to lead people that were blind because they had kept them in the darkness all these years, the blind leading the blind. And their, their real problem wasn't their pride, their arrogance, wasn't even their lust for power. It was their blindness. His love, God's love for them didn't translate into them loving people, the people they were supposed to be loving and leading because they didn't receive God's love, they failed to love. That really is the core of the problem. Jesus didn't condemn them. In fact, I think his heart yearned for them to open up and see God for the first time, to become all that God had meant them and created them and designed them to be, leaders with real vision, leaders that could see his heart. And you know what? It's no different for us. We need to see the way that we are loved by God in order to understand his passion for us, in order to be people who love through acts of service and do so without restraint, to do that without conditions, to do that without expectations, to do it just because 
we love. And we love because he loved us. That's why I went through the whole divorce thing, because I needed you to see that the real issue there was blindness to the love of God, blindness to the heart of God. Because God's heart beats for us with a passion to see us live an abundant life, a life of freedom before God. We need to get that vision. When our hearts really understand and our eyes really see and our minds really comprehend, there won't be anything, folks, that's impossible for us. The culture of honor that we've instilled and created in this place, that will be second nature to us as we learn to love this way. Loving one another fervently from the heart, just, they won't be just words from 1 Peter. They'll be the way that we live. Being the servant of all will be all the honor anyone desires. It's then, it's then that our love will be like God's love, no matter which love language you speak, hear, receive, or give. We will look like Jesus. And that really is the point, isn't it? It's what the Pharisees missed. It's what Jesus longed, I think, for them to understand. And he wanted that desperately to be for us. That's why he said, it's not going to be this way for you. You're going to be different. We're starting a whole new culture here. It's called kingdom culture, folks. I need you to see the kingdom of God, and here it is. The kingdom of God loves like this, that we lay down our lives for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just, I'm amazed at your love. It's hard for it to not bring me to tears. Your passion for us just doesn't know any end, and your loving kindness is eternal. It never ends. This is how you love. And this is what you desire for us as a people, that we would love one another the way that you loved us, the way that you continue to love us, that we would have as much passion for one another as we have for you and vice versa. And it really begins with understanding your heart for us. It really begins with understanding just the smallest measure, really, of your passion for us. If we can get just that much, Father, there won't be anything to hold us back from loving one another. And so, Father, I pray that for us as a people, that we would have our eyes open, that we would see your incredible passion for us, and in seeing that, would be so moved that we would love one another the way that you love us. Thank you for your amazing love. In Jesus' name, amen.